it's Christmas time, right? Time to hang the stockings, drink lots of hot chocolate, and beware of the Dayton Devils and the downtown posse? Welcome to Cryptic Soup. Spoiler alert, the Devils of Dayton are not the local sports team. Christmas holiday weekend. No one would have ever imagined what was about to unfold on the city's west side. In the end, six people would be dead. The fact that it was truly stranger on stranger crime, which is the most difficult homicide to solve, there was not even a motive. In a prison interview, Heather Matthews blamed peer pressure for her role. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to do what they was doing. Welcome back, guys. Howdy, howdy. <laughs> no. Look, I'm Woody. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Ah, uh ah, -huh, uh -huh. Give me that. <laughs> Why? <laughs> We're not howdy, howdying them. Howdy, howdy. I've yeah. never said that in my life. I don't know why I said it now. <laughs> it reminds me of hootie hoo. When, when you're doing mischievous activity and you have to give a signal, you give a hootie hoo. Never mind. So anyways... <laughs> My mom's listening and she'll be like, yes, yes, Lena. <laughs> I feel like my it's one goodness. of those things my mom taught me that doesn't really exist. <laughs> like the box? Yes. <laughs> like, like the dead man's chest. That was on an unreleased episode, so no one it knows was. what the dead man's chest is. Yep. <laughs> oh, man, guys. My mom. My mom. My mom. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> well... We had some cool events recently bring brought to fruition. <laughs> the mini episodes. Tell mini them. Episodes. Tell Kylie. It's called the Cryptic 411. Zoom, zoom, zoom. <laughs> Cryptic 411. <laughs> I felt like there should be like a banner go flying through the air. Zoom, and stuff. Zoom, 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 zoom. We're really tired, guys. <laughs> All right. So the Cryptic 411 is going to be mini episodes that will we're not having like a set time when we put them out. We'll put them out when we put them out. Good times, right? <laughs> Whenever there's an update in the news or anything of the like, we will put it in the Cryptic 411. Maybe it's a short story that we find. Maybe it's a funny news article, things like that. It can be just a little bit of anything. It might be um, just, you know, updating of an old case we find or something. So we're out, we are going to have that. In the beginning of Santa of Covina, we gave you some updates. The part two of that will be in the mini episode so that you kind of know where to look for things. So I guess that just brings us to talking about today's case, which is not a mini episode. Nope, definitely not. <laughs> it is very... <laughs> Ab absolute not many uh one could call it um this really crazy word long <laughs> <laughs> i was so ready for a crazy word too i was like "Ooh, what <laughs> what is the crazy <laughs> what is the crazy word no just just really long nope just long okay well kylie i guess let's just get into the case then let's do it so this case does take place around the christmas time 
Hence why we're doing Christmas cases around Christmas time. Makes sense, right? A little bit. Well, in this season, at the end of December, Dayton, Ohio was decked out with holiday decorations, holiday cheer, festive tidings of the season. The courthouse square in the middle of downtown had a tree lighting ceremony with most of the town in attendance. Even the Dayton Arcade had reopened temporarily with pop-up shops, eateries, everything you could think of for Christmas time. However, despite all the holiday cheer, beautiful decor left over from the Christmas season, the only thing everyone could notice was the front page of the December 30th, 1992 edition of the Dayton Daily News, outlining the events of the Christmas weekend killing spree. The headlines were discussing how members of a gang had gone on to murder multiple people and leave many injured. Not to mention the ripple effect of how many other people's lives were destroyed in this horrific event, which went down as the worst crime spree in Dayton history. So to give you a reference point of kind of where Dayton is, it's a few hours southwest of Cedar Point. It's to the west of Columbus, Ohio. Sorry, Columbus, Ohio. And it's almost a straight shot east from Indianapolis. So Indianapolis is in the middle of Indiana. Kind of go to the the right, swing swing a right from there to Ohio. If that can kind of give you a, a kind of idea where it's at. Columbus is huge. Like Columbus is mm-hmm. where uh, Ohio State is. Yeah. And Dayton is only a few hours from it. So. So it's probably like, and I mean, Dayton is, I think it said two thirds the size of Columbus. So it's a pretty big area. So that gives you reference points of where this is. But a big thing I want to talk about is the crime itself is considered a spree killing event. And I'm not always sure people know the difference between serial killers, spree killers, mass killers, things like that. So I'm going to quickly allude to what the difference between these is just so that you go into this with the same knowledge that we should all have. Because Kylie doesn't know. (laughs) I figured Kylie would not know. (laughs) A mass murderer kills four or more people at one location during one continuous period of time. It can be done within a few minutes or over over a period of days. Mass murderers commit murder at one location usually. Mass murders can be committed by a single individual or a group of people. Killers who murder several members of their family usually fall under a mass murdering category. Think the Unabomber or like a bombing, things like that, a mass murdering. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I put a different one in the notes, but I don't think you know who that killer is. No, I don't. So it, it's Richard Speck for anyone that was wondering. Um, the guy that murdered nursing students. Spree killers next. Spree killers are often also referred to as a rampage killer. They murder two or more victims at more than one location. So that's already the difference is there's more than one location. Their murders occur in separate locations, and the spree is considered a single event because there's no cooling off period between the murders. So it could happen, you know, 10 days in a row, one every other day. But because it's every other day, it's so fast paced. And then it's that's that's the spree. It's not like, you know, 
three in one week and then a year cooling down and then starting back up. An example is Charles Starkweather, a spree killer. Between 1957 and January of 1958, he and his 14-year-old girlfriend killed 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming. And it was over a short period of time, that's less than a year, and they killed 11 people. So it was kind of like back to back to back to back because that's almost one a month. That's a spree. Okay? There was no big pauses. That's one month. December 1957 and January 1958. That's one month. Yes. That's a lot of people. So as you can see, there was no cooling off period. Serial killers murder three or more victims, but each victim is killed on a separate occasion. Unlike a mass murder or a spree killer, a serial killer usually will select the victim and have a cooling off period between murders. Now, this is where it gets convoluted. Serial killers often have their own rampage time or they lose their cooling down period the more they're killing. It does not turn them into a spree killer usually. It just means they're more agitated, more gearing up, and it's kind of like considered near the final kills and things like that. Some serial killers travel to find their victims and some plan the crimes carefully but some do stay in the same general geographical area. So they could be done in the same area, but they could be further away. Think more. Ted Bundy, Israel Keys, people like that. Does that make sense, Kylie? It does. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. I needed that. (laughs) It's not just something that like you would necessarily know. And some people don't sometimes understand the difference between a killer and a spree killer. Because a killer is a person that kills people, correct? But to actually be a serial killer, you have to have three or more victims. There's a line in Scream. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Where Gail Weathers is running up the steps to Dewey and he's in the school. And she says something about, so we have a serial killer on our hands. And he takes his hat off his head and he like puts it in front of himself looking all like chivalrous. And he goes, they got to knock off a few more kills to get that title. And she's like, well, we can hope (laughs) because she wants the news ratings, you know, but I always think of that when people are calling something a serial killer. I'm like, no, we got to we got to hope for more. If you want that title, like that's kind of how a serial killer would think of it. Not that Gail Weathers is a serial killer. So now that we had a vocabulary lesson and another lesson in Scream. Shut (laughs) up, Athena. My goodness. (laughs) We can talk about what happened during this killing spree to figure out who the Dayton Devils are. December 24th, 1992. It was in the early morning hours when Laura Taylor, who was 16 years old, and her boyfriend, Marvelous Keen, who was 19 years old. Marvelous. (laughs) Marvelous Miss Maisel. (laughs) Sorry, Marvelous. They started to construct a robbery plan. The goal was that they were going to rob a man named Joseph Wilkerson, who was 34 years old, who worked at the General Motors area. And how they were going to do this was that Laura knew this guy and she was promising to have an orgy with him. She knew that this man would pay for sex from people. I don't know if he specifically did it from her ever, because keep in mind, he's 34 and she is 16. She is a runaway and she doesn't have a lot of money, so I'm not sure. 
Also keep in mind that her boyfriend is 19. We will talk about the statutory rape later. Don't worry. I saw the look, Kylie. We'll talk about it later. I like read ahead and my eyes went so wide. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Okay. Taylor called Joseph and told him there would be girls, sex and fun as long as he wants to be part of it. Since they needed girls to be part of the event to persuade Joseph, they invited a fellow friend named Nicole Matthews, who was a 20 year old girl who recently was released from prison. This sounds like a great group of people. <laughs> great group. The kids then lured Joseph into wanting to join in this whole orgy event. So they showed up to his home at Prescott Avenue, which I wouldn't want to have the orgy at my house. Ugh, you'd have to clean it. I want to have it somewhere else. You leave the filth <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah, I don't want to have to clean up after an orgy. Ugh. <laughs> so he probably doesn't mind if he likes orgies. <laughs> Come on, you got to have standards, sir. It's okay to have the orgy, just not have to clean the orgy. Right, right. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> the two girls walked into Joseph's house. They shared a drink with him and proceeded to make their moves. Laura and Joseph went into the bedroom first, which after a short time, Nicole had joined them. While Joseph had taken off his clothes, the girls were pretending to take off their clothes and they were like teasing him with it. You're like, oh, you know, you take off yours. I'll take off mine. But when Laura went to pull her pants down, she faked it and instead pulled out a gun and ordered him to get on the bed. Maybe he was like, OK, with that, though. <laughs> that was you can't keep kink shame. <laughs> they bound them to the headboard in the bedroom with electrical cords and proceeded to ransack and rob his home. During the scavenge event of his home, they found a 32 caliber Derringer revolver. I pronounced that wrong. Kylie, fix it. <laughs> my grandparents last name is derringer <laughs> derringer revolver we got them a it's like this really 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 small gun like it's really really small and so we got one for my grandpa for christmas one year and we just like put it in a shadow box but it's really cute it's the cutest gun you've ever seen that is really cute i googled it it's it's a really tiny little revolver it's cute it kind of looks like a toy almost because of it it does yeah it kind of does look like a toy well they found this revolver in the garage because joseph told them that it was there if you were tied to your bed with people robbing your home why would you tell them where a gun is if they already also have a gun I'm very confused. I'm thinking maybe he thought like, you know, if you want my valuables, this is a valuable I have. I have this gun. Yeah. Just like listing off all of the possible things that they could want. And also so maybe he's leave. like, well, if they find this, they might think I have others and then they'll they might kill me because they think I'm going to get away and kill them or something. Maybe if I just tell them where the gun is. Yeah, maybe. So I don't know. Who knows? <sighs> Who knows? I've never been in that situation <laughs> to uh, to find out. You haven't had an orgy go wrong where you end up tied to your bed with electrical cords and a gun pointed to your head? No, don't. Don't recall. You're not living life to the fullest, your brother. I guess not. The sad part about this Derringer gun is that it would be the gun that Marvelous ends up shooting Joseph in the chest with. Due to his body not being discovered for multiple days, the cause of death is undetermined. But Taylor ended up finding the second weapon a 25 caliber pistol and shooting Joseph a second time in the head. I'm sorry, Laura Taylor. They noticed his face was covered with blankets when they did discover his body. The police did. And later the teens admit this was to muffle the noise when he was being shot. 
So he was shot in the chest first. He probably was in pain. They muffled his mouth. Oh, okay. Like they were muffling him. Not Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. I understand now. Also, probably while he was tied up, he was probably making noise. So they did it at some point. Yeah. After they murdered Joseph, they then stayed in his home, stealing random things. Some of the things they stole were two guns, a portable color television, a hairdryer, a curling iron, a cordless phone, and a microwave. They ate his food, partying in his home, and stole his cars. I think he had two cars. It's a little confusing, the whole car situation. I will try to talk about the cars throughout this case, but it gets a little muddy. Okay. All the while they were stealing and ransacking this home, he was still dead in the home. And they made a mess of this home. It was just, uh, when the police went inside, they said it was absolute trashed. It wasn't until days later when the police did find Joseph Wilkerson in his home and they had found no signs of forced entry, furniture overturned, items scattered and stolen, and the home had been ransacked. In the back bedroom, Wilkerson's body was laid on the bed in the middle of the room, arms spread, wide eagle. His arms and wrists were tied to bedposts with electrical cords, his face and chest covered with the bloody quilts and gunshot wounds to the right eye and the left side of his chest. But that wouldn't happen until the 30th. So let's flip back again and figure out what the kids did after murdering Wilkerson and until his body was found. On December 24th, let's go back to that day, they killed him and they shot Joseph Wilkerson. Around noon on that day, the kids decided a fun thing to do would be to go hang out at the arcade and downtown town square. They acted as if nothing was wrong and that they didn't just commit this heinous activity. If that wasn't gruesome enough, the posse of friends at this point consisting of uh, three people, which was Laura, Marvelous, and Nicole, went on to murder someone else. The group of this people in this story, I just a moment ago referenced as the posse. It is because they gave themselves the nickname of the downtown posse. They called themselves a gang. Originally, their biggest gang activity was that they would steal things and illegally panhandle down at the courthouse square. That was at least until these events. During this time, Laura, Marvelous, and Nicole were joined by a fourth member of the posse, which was Nicole's boyfriend, Demarcus Smith, who was 17 years old. It's so crazy. Like, they're just kids. Mm-hmm. Like, the ringleader is Laura Taylor, who is 16. Yeah, that's crazy. That's insane. So next, the victim was Danita. Probably. Danita. Yes. Danita Gallette. Danita was 18 years old and a senior at Patterson Cooperative High School. She was the mother of a two-year-old, and she was currently using a payphone outside a neighborhood market in West Dayton on Neal Avenue. What happened was Laura said, I like her shoes. So they decided to kill her. She was pronounced dead at the hospital. The gang ended up stealing Danita's plaid coat, her Fila gym shoes, her jacket, and her book bag with 50 cents inside it. Remember, all of this started was because they wanted money to rob. They wanted to rob things for money. Right. So, So at this point, they've killed two people. They've stolen a few things, but they've only made 50 cents. Well, but they stole a bunch of things, so. 
but it's not stuff they could really panhandle that easily in the town because they were things people would know notice who's there right. probably marvelous pulled out the gun when he saw danita and said merry christmas bitch before shooting her danita's last words were don't shoot me as they pulled the trigger police found danita on the ground of the telephone booth with nine shots in the telephone booth total but she was hit five times she was laying in a pool of her own blood there were 25 caliber blazer aluminum bullet shell casings near her body that would be taken in for evidence. Isn't that technically, isn't it more than one shot? Isn't it a crime of passion? That's circumstantial. Oh, okay. Because it has to be connected. Yes. Okay. I couldn't think of it. They are strangers, so no. Yeah, okay. The posse ended up going to the next victim's house at this point, which would be the home on Yuma Place. I'm naming all these locations because it's easier to name the location than to keep trying to reference it because I'll have to come back. This story is very back and forth. Because it's teenagers and they're dumb and young (laughs) and they're doing stupid things. They're children who think like children. So they go to the next victim's house on Yuma Place where friends of the posse were often seen hanging out. The next victim would be Jeffrey Wright a 28-year-old who's Nicole's ex-boyfriend. Now, remember, Nicole's the 20-year-old, so that's not a super big age difference. But I don't know how long ago they dated. Could have been some underage stuff. I don't know. Nicole and Jeffrey had fought earlier that night, so everyone had heard about it. Also in the home were two other posse members, Wendy Cottrell, 16 years old, and her boyfriend, Marvin Washington, 18 years old. The posse had just gotten back from shooting and killing Danita, and they came in the house chanting, shouting, and being thrilled about the events they had just experienced. They were literally shouting like, we killed her. We just killed a bitch. Oh, my God, we killed her. Like, things like that. Laura was holding the stolen bag and clothing. Someone else put on the stolen Fila gym shoes and discovered they fit, so they wore them for the rest of the crimes. And they counted out the 50 cents. They were super proud about having this 50 cents. It's 50 cents. Even in 1992, that's not that much money. No, yeah. A half hour before midnight, Jeffrey returned to the apartment looking for Nicole again. Because of their fight earlier, he wanted to talk to her. The posse said Jeffrey then dragged her by her hair to a bedroom, which resulted in her current boyfriend, Demarcus, fighting Jeffrey over Nicole. DeMarcus then started chasing Jeffrey out of the upstairs apartment and firing at him with a gun as he raced across an open field. Jeffrey hit the ground trying to play dead, but it didn't work because DeMarcus instead walked right up to him and pulled the trigger on the automatic gun until it emptied. He was shot four times in the legs, but afterwards, Jeffrey ended up getting up and running to a neighbor's house. When he was shot in the legs four times and he persevered. That is commitment. That is, yeah, commitment to live. That's legit. Jeffrey ended up being taken to the 5th District Police Station on Salem Avenue. And then he was later taken to the hospital and he survived. Good. So at this point, the posse is consisting of Laura Taylor, 16, Nicole Matthews, 20, 
Demarcus Smith, 17, and Marvelous Keen, 19. I'm going to keep updating you because it changes. After shooting Jeffrey, the posse tried eluding the police by leaving where they were hanging out and instead hanging out at a woman named Sandra Pinson's home. So Sandra, is it Sandra or Sandra? Mm. San, right? Probably Sandra. Sandra is the mother and aunt of two other fellow posse members. Dion, who's 16 years old, and Nicholas, who's 17. Dion is her son. Nicholas is her nephew. So the posse went to Sandra Pinson's home. And at this point, they started talking about their next plan. They decided the next step was to get more money by robbing an ATM around 1 or 2 a.m. So they took the stolen red Buick from their first victim, John uh, Joseph Wilkerson, and piled in the vehicle, and the four kids decided to drive to the bank on Salem Avenue and rob someone using the ATM machine. But after waiting a long time, finally when a driver did pull up to the ATM, the person got really suspicious of the other car in the lonely parking lot and ended up driving away without using the ATM. So moral of the story is uh, follow your gut because mm-hmm. it's normally right. So that was all the first day. Dang. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was the first day. If I could kill for that energy. <laughs> so let's move on to day two, December 25th, 1992. On Christmas Day, Laura had convinced her ex-boyfriend, Richard Maddox, Richmond. Richmond Maddox. Richmond. Richmond Maddox. Why are you saying that weird? That's his name. Say it again. Richmond Maddox. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you're just not emphasizing the way I'm emphasizing. Richmond. Richmond Maddox. You're kind of like, what's the word I want? You're just kind of slurring it all together. Richmond, Rich, Richmond Maddox, Richmond Maddox, Richmond Maddox. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I feel like if I didn't say Maddox, Richmond. Yeah. It's the Maddox that's throwing me off. Like the M and the N. It's M, yeah. M and M. Yeah. Sorry. N and M. N and M. On Christmas Day, Laura convinced her ex-boyfriend, Richmond Maddox, 19 years old, from his parents' home to come hang out. So at this point, there's a theme. Pro tip. Don't date any of the girls from the Dayton Devils downtown posse because you will die. Clearly. Because this is the second ex-boyfriend now. So the two left Richmond's parents' house while in the car with Marvelous, Demarcus, and Heather. They were in the. uh, So actually, let me just explain that a little bit better. Richmond and Laura were in the first car. And following that car was Marvelous, Demarcus, and Heather in a secondary car. And this was one of the stolen cars from Joseph Wilkerson's house. Richmond noticed the car behind them following them, and he thought that was really suspicious. So he decided he was going to speed up to try to lose them. But Laura realized that she would get separated from the posse. And since she's the ringleader, she was like, Hell no. So she put the Derringer revolver to his right temple and did not hesitate and instantly killed him. The car was obviously going to crash, though, knowing this. So Taylor jumped from the moving vehicle to escape the crash. 
All right. All right. Okay. The police arrived on scene to see a blue Chevy Caprice that had smashed into a tree in front of a house at 2256 Benton Avenue. The driver's body was slumped across the floor by the front seat. The police first assumed this was a car crash until they noticed a bullet in the skull of the driver. Neighbors had recalled seeing two young teens near the crash not long after and described these to the police. One of the neighbors even talked to this this two people, but it didn't do much past that. Uh, how it went was they were kind of like, oh, my gosh, like what happened over there? And the kid was like, there's a car crash. And he's like, yeah, is everyone OK? He's like, the car crashed. <laughs> OK. And they like didn't really have a, a full conversation. And then he saw them get in the car and leave. Obviously, that was DeMarcus and Marvelous, but the guy didn't realize that that probably wasn't the people from the vehicle. He saw two people in two vehicles. He probably assumed that was the car crash people. Oh, I got you. So he thought that they were yes. like a part of that and wanted to make sure everyone was OK. But due to all this, Richmond died of a single gunshot wound and was the next victim in their brutal slangs. At least some of these are like in the head. So, I mean, instant death. Yeah, hopefully. Well, that was on Christmas Day, which is also very sad. Let's move on to the next day, December 26th. The posse decided they still really wanted their money. So they drove to a BP station on Salem Avenue where they tried picking a new victim to rob. The woman was airing up her tires at a gas station. Meanwhile, Marvelous and Demarcus had burst out of the car and the boys were shouting about shooting the woman. And the woman's like, hell no. (laughs) And she ran away and called the police. She said that her Dodge Shadow vehicle was stolen at gunpoint. Good for her. (laughs) But since they didn't get money like they were hoping, they told Taylor, since she's the ultimate one here, that she could choose the target for the next robbery. All they wanted was cash. So Taylor decided the posse went to a family-owned gas station mini-mart on West 5th Street called Short Stop Mini-Mart. It was a family-owned place, and usually only two people would be working there, so it was an isolated, easy place to rob. Laura entered the building first to scope out the layout and give recon to the group. The plan was, if she didn't come out after several minutes, the coast is clear, come on in. While inside, Taylor had to buy time, so she bought some chewing gum and walked to the back of the store and took out a Chili Willy fruit juice pop from the refrigerator case. She asked how much the Chili Willy was, and the clerk behind the counter, who was Sarah Abraham, answered her 35 cents. Taylor was a nickel short. So she went up to Jimmy Thompson, a 71-year-old regular at the store, who kind of was a worker there. He, like, did errands for the gas station and helped out, but he didn't actually, like, work their work there. And it's family-owned, you know, so it's probably one of those, like, he's so helpful, he just helps out type thing. Jimmy gladly gave the sweet-looking girl a nickel. And that's when the next two boys, Demarcus and Marvelous, entered the store. Sarah Abraham, the 38-year-old woman who was working, was a mother of three. She was working in her family business over the holiday season, and she eventually would be the next person shot by Marvelous. She was taken to the St. Elizabeth Medical Center, clinging to life, 
while, while she had two bullet wounds in her, one through her mouth and the other through the top of her head. She died five days after the shooting while in the hospital. Sarah had received a hand-drawn picture from one of her daughters for Christmas, and it was buried with her. Oh, my goodness. Five days is a long time to live with that type of injury. I just can't imagine your mouth being shot. No. Because eating, breathing, existing would be painful. Right. Even when you don't want to, you accidentally move your mouth or like clench your jaw, things like that. And I all the time just bump my face and like don't notice things. You touch your face a lot. I also can't feel my face. So I, I know, but you face. touch your face a lot. <laughs> I do not do that. The next person was Jones Pettis. He was actually at the same time as Sarah Abraham. So he was in the store and he was just a customer in the gas station when they went inside and he was a witness. So the posse shot him. He was shot in the hand and in the stomach, but he ended up surviving. Jimmy Thompson, the older man, had not been killed because he faked getting shot and slumped over the counter. Nice. Good job, him. It didn't work for Jeffrey, but it worked for him. Yes. The gang ended up robbing the gas station and ended up with a whopping $44. So at this point, they have $44.50. That's, yep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of deaths. So they ended up leaving in a blue Pontiac Grand Am, which was the second of the two cars they stole from Joseph Wilkerson. So we're still on the day after Christmas, the 26th. During this day, the kids realize that if they keep using all these stolen vehicles from Joseph Wilkerson, they're going to get caught. So they instead used the stolen uh, shadow. And they decided to switch out the license plates. So they switched the Buicks and the Shadows license plate to hopefully like throw off the cops. I mean, it's it's a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. After the gas station shooting, the posse had then returned to Kumler Avenue, where DeMarcus and Marvelous were realizing there might be some loose ends they need to clean up. They had a lot of witnesses or people that just heard about these crimes so far. In particular, the boys decided they needed to clean up after themselves by dealing with some of the other stuff that had to do with the cars. So they switched up the license plates, but they just still had all these cars laying around. So first they moved the Blue Grand Am over to Catalpa Drive, which was a street over from Coomler, so it looked less obvious. That's when they actually switched the license plates between the cars. Now, earlier that day, remember at Yuma Place and the day before when they had went there, they were like shouting and chanting about killing people. And they had ended up telling Wendy and Marvin about the crimes. So they realized that's something else that might need cleaned up. DeMarcus said, we ought to unload a clip in Marvin and was reported to have told that to Marvelous. He was convinced that they would tell the police and become snitches. So now the group, plus the two friends, plus another person, decided to cram into the Black Shadow and drive to Yuma Place and all hang out. So they all decided that they were going to get in these vehicles. And the posse now at this point, because they keep inviting people, is Laura Taylor, who's 16, Nicole Matthews, 20, 
Demarcus Smith, 17. Marvelous Keen, 19. So those are the original four. Plus, Wendy Cottrell, 16, who's pregnant with Marvin's child, her boyfriend. Marvin Washington, 18. And then this new random person that we hadn't heard of before in the storyline, Nick Woodson. I did not find out his age. I know, this is a mess. I'm sorry, guys. I'm trying to get you as much information without making it messy. So the group drove to a liquor drive through first and passed beer and liquor around in the car. I assume maybe Nick Woodson is over 21 and that's how they got the liquor and stuff. Oh, yeah, maybe. And maybe that's why he was invited. But maybe that's also why he didn't have his ages because he kind of like went more into hiding after this because he was older. He's like, don't publish that. Right. The next thing that happened was Marvelous decided he wanted to go visit his brother's grave. So Marvelous's brother had died a year before in a robbery gone wrong. And he was very broken up about it all the time. So he drove them over to the cemetery on Germantown Street. Nick could tell things were really weird and just like the vibe was off. Everyone was getting too drunk. He like did not like it. He started to walk home, but he ended up getting dropped off over on Limestone Avenue. I guess maybe that's near his home because he didn't go back to the Yuma place. I think he went home. The remaining posse members, plus the two friends, so there's still the six people. They drove around for a while until they noticed an open gate at the city gravel storage area off Richley Drive. Marvelous said he had to go pee, and so they were going to go in the pit area. Instead, when they parked, he got out of the car, took a big swig of his wild Irish rose, and then DeMarcus got out and drank his Thunderbird. And then the boys forced the two friends to get out of the car. He forced them to march behind a large pile of dirt and shot them. Wendy was said to be pleading before she was shot, stating they would never become stitches. Snitches. (laughs) Get stitches. Snitches, stitches. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just want to mention, though, you said that Marvelous's brother died from a robbery gone wrong. How was- ironic. How ironic that is that he has now become the robbery gone wrong. I actually put that at the end of the notes, the whole thing about his brother. But I was like, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bring it up now. And I kind of looked at you thinking that you were going to say that because I was ready for it. (laughs) And then you didn't. So I was like, wow, I really thought I had Kylie pinned, but I must be wrong. Nope, you're right. Okay. Okay, good. (laughs) I just waited a little bit. (laughs) You wanted it to like settle. Be like, haha, gotcha, bitch. (laughs) So Wendy had been shot in the mouth and through her ear. Her shoes were missing. She was on her back, her coat was open, and the inside of her pockets were pulled out as if she was robbed. Above her head, a foot away, were three spent 25 caliber blazer casings. There are mixed reports of if she was shot in the stomach area, like abdomen, as well. Found some that said yes, some that said no. I don't want to go on record saying it happened. Could have happened, though. Maybe. But that's how she died. Eight feet away was Marvin's body, also on his back, shot several times in his side and in his head. There were seven twenty-five caliber casings silhouetting his body. Wendy's mother had to identify her from a photograph, 
She hadn't seen her 16-year-old daughter in three weeks. This is common, though, because many members of the posse were runaways, and the bodies of these two people were not found until after the killers were in custody. Yikes. So they killed them because they were afraid they would be snitches. Right. Guess who snitched, though? (laughs) Nick Woodson. The dude from earlier. That they let just go home because he felt uncomfortable. Yep. Like, there wasn't any red flags on that side. You know, just being like, oh. He had kind of heard things. He kind of heard. He kind of caught the vibe. He kind of knew things. So Nick ended up talking to people. At first, the Dayton homicide detectives didn't know if the crimes were connected until they noticed the ammunition was the same for all the shootings. They had found the casings in the gas station that matched up with the one in Maddox's car and then the payphone near Danita. But since none of these victims knew each other, it was harder to determine the motive or why the crimes were occurring. Nick Woodson was like, hey, let me tell you. Let me tell you. So he called. He told his side of the story. He told them the vehicles to look out for. He told them they were acting shady, who was with them, things like that. But that's where it ended. The police were like, "Okay, thank you for this. We really will use this. But now they couldn't find the kids. They had to figure out what to do next. If I was him, I would have just stayed in the police station. I would not have (laughs) gone home like, nope. Could you imagine? Like. I don't know. You wouldn't feel safe. Yeah, no. Anywhere. You'd feel like everyone is watching you. These kids already have broken into a home, but. Well, not really broken in. I guess they got in by the promise of an orgy, but they've already showed that they don't care. They will do it. Right. Around 2.45 p.m., the current Dayton police sergeant, John Huber, was driving along Cornell Drive when he glanced down South Coomler Avenue and saw something that caught his eye. A black Dodge shadow that he had never seen in the neighborhood before. And he remembers seeing a report of the same vehicle and the tips from Nick Woodson. The car was in front of 726 Coomler Street. So he recalled in the license plate number. F as in Frank, K as in kill, O as in octopus, 727. To see if it belonged to the stolen shadow. A check showed that the plate instead belonged to a blue 1989 Pontiac Grand Am registered to a Joseph Wilkerson. So at this point, he was like, hmm, that's odd. He had been a 16 year veteran on the police force and he quickly realized that someone's switching plates. So he turned down an alley in front of the shadow, hoping to turn around and keep an eye on the car, thinking no one was in it. But at the end of the alley, he stumbled upon something else. A blue 1989 Grand Am (laughs) with no plate. I wonder what that is. (laughs) Interesting. Huber got out and checked the front license plate, which read F as in Frank, M as in Mary, B as in boy, 18. He recognized it as the stolen shadows plate. So he realized that they were switched and he noted that this was important and they're for sure who he's looking for. And that they're not very smart. Not at all. (laughs) So as as he was in the middle of calling this in, he saw the Dodge shadow just take off. So he's like calling it in. And he's like, hey, you know, I could use backup. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, backup, please. Oh, what is going on? Backup, they're backing up. 
So he started to chase the vehicle down, but they stopped two blocks away and parked. Inside the car was Laura, Nicole, DeMarcus, and Marvelous. In the report, it wrote that DeMarcus actually unwillingly did not want to be arrested. He jumped out of the vehicle and ran to a nearby house. The house he ended up running to was Sandra Pinson's house from the two gang boys earlier. Mm -hmm. I can't tell if this is brilliant or stupid. So what he did was he (laughs) ran into Sandra's house and he didn't like tell them that he's running in the police or anything. But he must have said something about like being warm or something. It's, you know, the middle of December. I don't know how you get away with that sentence. In Ohio, it's cold. He just takes off his shirt and puts on a hat and sits down and starts watching TV. So he ran into this house, right? Okay, brilliant. The police come knocking and they're like, hey, (laughs) who's in that room? And Dion's like, me and my mom. And they're like, okay, but who's that sitting in the corner with no shirt and a hat on? Like, who's that person? He's like, oh, that's DeMarcus Smith. (laughs) A.K.A. the person that you just got the tip from. Right, from from, Nick. From from Nick, yeah. So they're like, yeah, okay, so he's arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, we're gonna gonna, uh, take you in now. Yep, thanks. So it was a great idea. He almost could have gotten away with it, but like not at all. Yeah, he probably should have told them so that they would be like, uh, that's John Smith. Yeah. (laughs) So the rest of the posse, though, did comply with police orders and went into custody willingly. The that's honestly so surprising to me. Like, they're such like troublemakers. That's I'm sorry. Go on. You're (laughs) jumping ahead of me just too fast. So Huber later said they cooperated and put their hands up. It was later I found out from the detectives, Laura Taylor told Marvelous Keen to shoot me, but he wouldn't. He apparently hesitated when he had to shoot the, the officer. Well, that's good. <laughs> so, see, you... I mean, brutally murdering a police officer is going to get you absolutely nowhere. <laughs> to further the police ideas that these are the people in the vehicle, they found the twenty five caliber Nick, um, handgun that was nickel-plated. Under the driver's seat, that is what the bullets had gone to. Also, Marvelous was wearing one of Wendy Cottrell's delicate gold necklaces and Danita's red and white plaid jacket. In his pocket was a commemorative pocket knife that matched knives that Joseph Wilkerson would give to his male relatives. The four suspects were interrogated in separate rooms downtown. Laura was the only one who refused to talk. She lawyered up real fast. But the other three were loose lip losers. I say they say everything, but almost because they just decided not to talk about what happened at the city gravel storage area. None of them? None of them. Okay. None of them even mentioned it. After four members of the posse were behind bars, Laura got a visit from a local minister. Reverend William Head, the chief investigator of the Dayton branch of the NAACP. He was concerned that because she was only 16 and accused of such terrible crimes that this was not going to go well for her. But during their visit, Taylor had actually told him, Laura Taylor had actually told him about the two other victims, Wendy and Marvin. 
Police ended up finding the bodies in the city-owned gravel pit, and Laura said they were shot because the group thought they would snitch on them to the police. Well, she actually told the truth. I really wish the police were like, oh, no. Actually, your friend Nick told us. Right? The trial and sentencing went very smoothly thanks to the strong investigation, more than enough evidence, and willing witnesses. The media and courthouse attendees referred to the group as the Dayton Devils and claimed they tried to ruin the holiday season. Yeah, I'm sure they uh, they uh, did that. <laughs> Some quotes from the police during the trials were, it will never be forgotten by the public because it was so heinous, so sinister, even in the light of things that are going on today. They were just killing people randomly for nothing, literally nothing. There was not even a motive in these cases. It was just for fun. Doyle Burke, the Dayton homicide detective who worked on the case, said that. One of the Dayton police sergeants, George Hammond, said they were like sharks. Once they tasted blood, they couldn't stop. Many of the detectives described Laura as cold hearted. And the whole event was said to start because she was hanging out with the possibly. (laughs) Don't read ahead like that. (laughs) She was hanging out with the posse. And she infamously said this famous quote that people talk about, like in the true crime world, saying, let's add a little drama in our lives. And that sparked the killing spree. Hey, Laura, this isn't drama. This is fucked up heinous shit. Right. This is a little bit more than drama. You're not like a lifetime special here. Calm down. The NAACP stood up for Laura and Demarcus. Kind of. They, they didn't like support their actions. Just just wait. What ended up happening was that there was this big deal about about it at the time, whether Laura and DeMarcus should be tried as adults or not due to the severity of the crimes. Since Laura was 16 and DeMarcus was 17, they were still minors. And the NAACP stood up for that and said, yes, their crimes are violent. They're rough. They're inhumane and they're awful. But since they are in a dominant white judicial system area, it would be unjust for them to be sentenced to be tried as adults since they are not adults according to the law. And if they did that, they thought it was a racial discrimination because if these were white kids, they would be getting away with more. I feel like I can't have that same opinion because I I feel like that's true. Like, I, or wait, I said that backwards. I feel like I have an opinion and that it is the same thing. That's what I meant to say. I do feel like racial tension could play on that. Yes, but they murdered a bunch of people. I'm not saying that that is the thing. They definitely just should be tried. But I feel like sentence them currently to maybe, you know, whatever the minor would receive. But then have an appeal at 18 and refer to their sentencing then. See if they've reformed at all. If so, keep the same sentence. If not, that's when you can change it. Maybe something like that. I don't know. It's a it's a slippery slope. I don't. It is a very slippery because slippery I don't, slope. I don't feel like these people could reform. No. But at the same time, if we don't give leeway to these people, what if other people that could reform this happens to later in life? You that know? is true. So that's where it becomes messy is it sucks that we can't pick and choose our battles. Yeah, I can agree with that. So I actually said that in this. 
the problem I have with this, the biggest problem is Laura because she's the ringleader and truly to her core is a violent individual that can't be reformed. This girl's past the point of that. <laughs> like I wrote that in my actual notes so that I could <laughs> talk it through myself, but then I tried to do it and I messed it all up anyways. <laughs> this is why I shouldn't read ahead or talk aloud. Or talk aloud. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Taylor and Heather Matthews are both serving life sentences at the Ohio Reformatory of for Women in Marysville. Isn't that weird that they are together? Yeah, that is very weird. I don't hear it's that. It's not a normal ever. thing. They normally break people up. Mm -hmm. So Laura will be eligible for parole in 2098 and Heather in 2132. I'm aware I said they have life sentences and then they're uh, eligible. It's because Ohio life sentences technically are 194 years. So it's not life, but I mean, no one's life is longer than 194 years. With that same sentence ruling, they say after 100, I think it's either 132 or 134, you get a parole. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Ohio. <laughs> I really, really needed that after living for more than 100 years. So Heather Matthews had a prison interview in 2000 explaining why she got into the crime spree. And she said to the reporter, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to do what they were doing. All right, Heather. <laughs> There's if, better role models out there, okay? <laughs> if they were all jumping off a bridge, when you jump off a bridge. <laughs> Demarcus Smith is serving a life sentence at Mansfield Correctional Institution for his role in this. He would be eligible for parole in 2123. <laughs> that doesn't even sound like a real year. No, nope, it's not. It's not a real year. It's not. Marvelous Keen confessed to all the accounts of murder and was sentenced to death. So he was the only one sentenced to death. And that's due to the fact that he was not a minor because Demarcus and Laura were minors. Now, Heather wasn't a minor, but she ended up taking a plea deal. So she was charged with accessory to the murder, the robberies, all that kind of stuff. But since she took the plea deal and helped them out and told them as much information as she could, that took the death penalty off the plate for her. I am in no way supporting Marvelous Keen, but I have an opinion here that I would like to share. I've watched some of the interviews of Marvelous. I've listened to a lot of stuff. I've read a lot of stuff. Marvelous was a very quiet person by nature and very shy and very. Okay. He was aggressive, obviously, but not like aggressive with talking. Like he was more a background character when it came to actually public speaking or talking. And I do think that plays a small 1% role in this 100% case. You'll find that out also when he speaks his last words, things like that. But also the police and everything are like, he's so cold. He showed zero remorse. He didn't even want to speak about the subject. I don't think he didn't want to speak about it. I just don't think he liked to speak. Like he didn't want to speak in general. But that also makes me wonder about the whole plea deal thing. Maybe he didn't know he could do that. Maybe he didn't even know what to say. Because you'll find out, like I said in a second, about the whole when he asks if he has last questions Marvelous was stunted in a lot of ways mentally, and that I feel like plays a part in this. Uh, I don't feel bad for Marvelous. I don't because he killed a bunch of people, but I don't think it was handled 100% correctly. Well, and it was kind of more like every I'm trying to think of the word I want. 
every like ringleader has a sidekick that's just like, yeah, go do this and they'll do it. If Marvelous is sentenced to death and he is not the ringleader, Laura Taylor needs a worse punishment. Right. <laughs> yes. hundred percent. Because you don't have pinky in the brain and say, well, <laughs> you know, they finally took over the world and blew half of it up. The brain is going to jail and pinky you're getting executed. Well, wait, n- no, that's not how it works. No. <laughs> Marvelous opted out of having a jury of peers for his trial because he would have had to talk during it. <laughs> and instead, he had three judges decide his fate. The judges that held his fate in their hands were Robert M. Brown, Lee A. Exler, and Robert D. Nichols. During his trial, they presented factors almost to sway the judges, kind of to like not have the death penalty and maybe just to do life imprisonment or something. And it did almost work because a year before the killings, remember Marvelous's brother was murdered in the robbery event. Also, his dad had abandoned his family. And his mother was struggling to get by. And his mother had lost everyone in that short time period. So his mother also came and pleaded on the stand, like, please don't take the only person I have left. Like, put him in prison if you have to. Just please. I know he's done wrong. Like, I know he's a bad person. Please don't take the only person I have left. This really made a huge impact. But then when they also saw and heard testimonies from Danita's sister on the stand from the other Mm -hmm. trials, it kind of sealed the deal. They did notice that mentally they aged him at only 14 to 16 years old and thought that maybe he wasn't all there. I couldn't find out if he had any psychology reports done or anything, but this makes sense why he was okay with dating someone so much younger than him, I feel like. Because Laura was only 16 and he had that mindset. But after all this on December 10th, 1993, so not even a year later, technically, they came back with the verdict of him being put on death row and receiving the fate of lethal injection. On July 21st, 2009, Marvelous Keen was convicted in all five of uh, in five of the killings and was executed by lethal injection at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville after 17 years and two failed appeals. Why did it take so long from what happened? He had to run out his appeals. Okay. You cannot put someone to death without their appeals being done. And that took 17 years. Yeah. Okay. I read about his appeal process, though, and things. And also in that, one of them, they said that he was like dead silent during it and he like wouldn't even talk. Again, I feel like they should have tried maybe and maybe they did and they just didn't they got tired of talking about it i don't know while in prison they said he was a model citizen he only had two violations his whole time there the first was within weeks of him being incarcerated and it was for having his radio too loud he never did it again the second one was in 2006 because he had a minor contraband violation which that could be anything to like that could be anything. Even just like making your bed wrong during setup days or whatever it's called. Right. Other than that, all the officers said he was a really good inmate, honestly. When they asked him if he had any last words, he literally said, no, why? Or 
he just he didn't have anything to say. And then it was either like a day before or a few minutes after they turned off the mic. Someone said something about like, are you going to have last words? And he's like, do they do a last words interview? What happens? And he didn't when they were even setting up the mic. He's like, what is that for? They're like, for your last words. And he's like. Hmm. Like he was he, he didn't, didn't even comprehend. Under, yeah. Like, yeah, this man had issues. Right. I feel like that weren't addressed. Someday I really want to do a whole episode about people's final meals. Yes. His final meal. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. I'm such a foodie. So they plan your final meals. I, I've i heard different things, but I've heard most oftenly they plan them a few days in advance and they start them actually in the morning a lot of times so that you have all day to eat them if you want. It's supposed to be a dinner meal, but I've read from a lot of different places that you have multiple hours or throughout the day to eat them or like if you wanted like a breakfast type of thing and then wanted like a dinner type of thing like you really just wanted waffles but then you just really wanted like steak and lobster but don't some people not some people you're medical let's talk about this real quick (laughs) when you die don't your bowels excrete everything Mm -hmm. so a lot of these people have huge, big, intense meals. Do you have to wear a diaper when they execute you? Ew, I don't know. Or something? Maybe. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Or like, I just don't. Okay. Well, his final meal, it'd be a doozy to clean up because. <laughs> it'd be a doozy. <laughs> you ready to hear what it is? It's its own paragraph if you cannot see. I'm so ready. Yes. It was at 4 p.m. And it was a porterhouse steak with A1 sauce, a pound of jumbo fried shrimp with cocktail sauce, french fries, onion rings, ketchup, dinner rolls, butter, two plums, a mango, a pound of seedless white grapes, two bottles that were like two liter full bottles of Pepsi, two full two liter bottles of A&W cream soda, and a German chocolate cake. Kylie, Kylie. Not a slice. I a said. Whole cake. <laughs> I said a German chocolate cake. Whole thing. Okay. So that was his final meal. Yeah, you're right. Be a doozy. <laughs> that's like enough to. That's a whole. That's, that's a, a week. That's a human. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Imagine being the cook and being like, oh, what do we got on the plate today? And he's like, oh my God, how many people are we executing today? And they're like, just one, Tom. Just one. Just one time. <laughs> Marvelous did not request to meet with any family members. He had no relatives attend his execution. In fact, he at one point said something about when they asked if he wants his mother to come see him. He's like, I just want her to get on with her life. Like, no, I don't want her to have to see me. No. Really sad. Yeah. So instead, two attorneys were his chosen witnesses from the Ohio Public Defender's Office. Officials expected nine people from the victim's family to witness, but in the final count, I think only seven were there if I if I read the right report. Danita's sister said her, the murder Danita's sister said that the murder of Danita had a huge impact on her life. The crime led to the breakup of her engagement, the loss of her child, and her mother. I don't really celebrate the holidays like other people, she said. I Go back in my mind and think about the day I found out my sister was killed. Six years later, my mother passed away prematurely. 
My mother passed away at 51 years old and she passed away due to grief. My mother absolutely died of a broken heart. And Rhonda Gillett said that, which was Danita's sister. She is now an advocate for victims' right and is working on her master's degree. She said she gets through the holidays by serving her church and feeding the homeless. I wonder who took in Danita's child. I was just going to ask that. Like, I couldn't find anything about it. I wonder if she did. I feel like she's the type of person that would. Either her or the mother, maybe. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that family. And it's around Christmas time. Sandra Penson, the lady with the house. With the, the house. That people live in. Her and her son, Dion, almost did get in trouble for being accomplices. But Sandra admitted she knew the kids were bad news, but not that bad to do those kind of crimes. She also was able to produce speeding tickets to prove that her son and nephew were with the other posse members, but like not at the same time during the actual crimes. But the funniest part about this is the part and place of the tickets placed them in a car that they received from a fellow posse member. That car was one of the stolen vehicles from Joseph Wilkerson. What? He ended up giving one of those cars that they stole to these two kids. So these two kids almost got framed for that. Oh, my goodness. But then it was evident that the kids just kind of got a stolen car and that they were not in part of the murders. So they may have gotten theft charges. I couldn't really figure out. But it it sounds like they they at least got in a little trouble, but they did not like get in severe trouble. Oh, so. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Yeah, like, I don't even know how to end this case. That's the end, guys. All right. See you next week. Bye. Okay, bye. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Kylie was with me for the first time while I was doing the write up for this. And she kept hearing me be like, there's another damn person. Like, who the hell is this? <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Another friend? Oh, my God. What car? I just kept screaming things. And I'm sure there's stuff I missed. I'm sure there's. I showed Kylie I was trying to read the court transcript last night and it's just hundreds of pages long. I got like 40 pages into it after already reading a book. And I was like, bro, it's midnight. I'm not going to read a whole (laughs) other book. I can't do it. The book I did read was called The Christmas Killings, 40 Hours to Justice by Stephen Grismer, Judith Monster, and Dennis Murphy. Two thumbs up. Great book. Also... I didn't read it, but the officers, Burke and Huber, I can't tell if it's together or if it's not, but they have a book about this. And it's also called like Christmas Killings, Not the Time or something like that. Christmas Killings, Not the Season. I didn't, it did not read that one though. I'm sorry. You can look up the documents, the Ohio State transcripts. You can look up like each specific one, like Ohio State transcript versus. Laura Taylor, Ohio State transcript versus Heather Nichols, like whatever their mm-hmm. names are. And you can look up each single one and they're each very, very, very long. And then altogether, they sum up the event of the Dayton Massacre transcript. And that one was like hundreds of pages. Oh, my goodness. So they put it all together, even being mm-hmm. separate. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to read through. and. That wasn't happening. My eyes went cross-eyed, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Nope. Uh, So that might not have been the most feel-good story. Yeah, no, maybe not. 
for Christmas time. Merry Christmas. Merry Happy Christmas. holidays. <laughs> As NSYNC would say, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. So we have some things we want to mention real quick. Kylie, do you want to mention the first one? Yes. So the guy that makes our logo, Taylor, he made his first NFT, which is kind of a big deal. A lot of people are getting into the NFT world. Um, It's a lot of mumbo jumbo. I don't know a lot about it, but it has something to do with cryptocurrency and all of these other things. But go check it out because that's a really cool feat to... uh, to uh what's the word i want to um do <laughs> no do is not the word i want <laughs> to achieve to achieve so yeah go check him out um you can check him out on what his instagram i was just about to say it Whoa, she's being mean y'all he's at lab monkey creative on instagram and he will be doing some um some more on our updates i'm excited to see those <laughs> during the middle of this by the way because we had just figured this out and during the middle of this i sent him like a voice of what we wanted like a voice chat of what we wanted and i was just like rambling on and then he literally just bullet points (laughs) everything that he said (laughs) this 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 and this That's better than our sound guy. Okay, so our sound guy, Damon (laughs) Volkovsky. I'm I'm wearing a a Damon shirt right now. Damon (laughs) Volkovsky. Like, I don't even know. I'll be like, okay, Damon. So I would like you to redo this. Here's what I want changed. I want this, 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 and this. I'll give him five points. He will pick randomly one of those five and do it. (laughs) And then he'll be like, you like it? I'm like, what about the other four? He's like... Yeah, I know. I but, saw them. But do you like it? <laughs> but do you like what I sent that ignored what you asked? I'm like, Damon, 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 Damon. <laughs> it's it's great. He actually is amazing. He ends up always getting everything we want in the end. It just, uh, it's just we're a little picky, let's just say. We are a little bit picky. We ended up having the greatest theme song, thanks to him. And he also helps us with all of our sound bits. For our ads, for our 411, for anything in between. He is great. We also want to thank Corey. He is our editor. He is our person that listens into all of our weird quips. He's our dad. He, he He's not my dad. Uh, <laughs> you call so him dad, on though. Next week's episode, we are dissecting Kylie's love life. <laughs> he is my father. We love him. He uh I made him dinner tonight. Love you, Dad. <laughs> he is core.media.photography on Instagram also. So go check him out also. You can see some pretty cool little snapshots. We want to say thank you to everyone in the Cryptic Soup fam. You can become a member too by leaving an Apple podcast rating and review. If you don't want to spend the time, just throw up a rating. You want to be loved and get a shout out? Throw a review. On Spotify, if you listen in, it doesn't do anything for our like rating reviews. It only changes if you actually follow. We found out when I was doing Spotify wrapped, it decided to tell me that. And I said, wow, that would be cool to know before. Our Spotify (laughs) wrapped was so funny because we just we started this year, you know, at the end of the year. Yeah, not very long ago. So it was like, 
you did it this year. It's like, <laughs> congratulations. Thanks. You posted your longest episode this year. And we're like, because we started this year. <laughs> right. They're like, you also posted your shortest episode this year. We're like, yes, we started this year. <laughs> They're like, you posted the most episodes this year. We started this year. <laughs> so it was just, it was a, a good Spotify wrap for us. Yeah. We did find out we have listeners in other countries. That was cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So. Well, guys, we are happy to hear from you if you want. Don't forget to follow the Instagram, Cryptic Soup Pod. And Kylie always says, our DMs <laughs> are open for suggestions. That was somewhere else. Sorry. <laughs> Where our DMs are always open for suggestions. You can slide on it. <laughs> slide on it. Baby. <laughs> a little baby. So remember, guys, subscribe, follow, tune in, keep up with us. We'll see you for the next episode. Stay tuned. Okay, but I heard his little clicky clacks, little Polly Pocket when he comes up here. Yeah, and Shiro will like randomly slam his body against the doors, and we don't know if he's gonna do that that time when he's walking around or not. Because sometimes he's like click clack prancing through the hallway, Mm -hmm. and sometimes he's like fucking slamming goddamn Undertaker (laughs) into this shit, and we're like. Whoa, bro, it's not the WWE Raw finale in there. You can calm down. <laughs> Fucking Kane's not even in there. Chill. <laughs> I doubt Kane is in your hallway. Maybe The Undertaker, though. <laughs>